Hello, and welcome to the Global Migration Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies at UBC. My name is Gabrielle dumpies Wooliver, and I'm your host for Season 3. The Migration Center is located in the unceded ancestral home of the Musqueam people. As we think about migration and mobility in this podcast, we remember that Musqueam people have dwelled here for millennia, and that this place is rightfully theirs. Today we'll be hearing from Efrat Arbel and Molly Jock. They're legal scholars at UBC whose work focuses on immigration detention in Canada. Jock is also a practicing lawyer. When COVID-19 first began, they found that more people were being released from immigration detention. It seemed to signal an important shift in how immigration detention was adjudicated and who was taken to be at risk when people crossed borders. But could this shift be maintained beyond COVID-19? And how is immigration detention legally justified either way? I spoke with Arbel and Jock about their current research to find out more. Welcome to Canada, a land of soaring mountains, cosmopolitan cities, and maximum security jails for thousands of migrants and asylum seekers? But don't think about that. Enjoy our vast, open spaces. Unless you're detained, trapped in a tiny cell simply for coming here to seek safety or a better life? Oh, Canada, where times... Canada has long enjoyed a reputation for being welcoming to immigrants and refugees. But what you're listening to is a video produced by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. It's for their campaign called Welcome to Canada. It highlights the little-known fact that, similar to the United States, Canada detains migrants and asylum seekers as part of its own border control regime. The campaign website riffs on how Canadian stereotypes help obscure its human rights violations. The page is dotted with passport stamps that say things like, let's pivot to maple syrup, or skating to a Tim Hortons to eat our feelings. And when you scroll to the image where this video is embedded, you see a salmon swimming upstream, leaping into the open jaws of a hungry bear. For some newcomers, the analogy is no joke. I don't see any persuasive justification for immigration detention to exist under Canadian law. Advocates and scholars have been working to abolish immigration detention in Canada for years. Efrat Arbel is one of those scholars. She's an associate professor of law at the University of British Columbia with expertise in refugee law, prison law, and the law of immigration detention. I do not think immigration detention is a principled response to border crossings. And I think that the state has at its disposal a variety of different ways through which to ensure that its borders are protected and that the safety of the public is protected without resorting to immigration detention. Arbel was one of several scholars cited by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International in their 2021 report detailing the mental health impacts of immigration detention. That report was published as part of the whole Welcome to Canada campaign. Also in 2021, she co-authored a paper with Ph.D. candidate Molly Jock titled Immigration Detention in the Age of COVID-19. My name is Molly Jock, and I'm a Ph.D. candidate at the University of British Columbia, and I'm also a practicing immigration lawyer. I specialize in immigration detention, amongst other things. 
Both Jacques and Arbel have been working in immigration law for some time, but COVID-19 offered a surprising turn in detention practices in Canada. So when the pandemic broke out very early on in, in March, April, I was representing an individual who had been detained for, gosh, how long? I think approaching a year. So I was looking at alternatives to detention for him and arguments as to why he should be released. So we saw the World Health Organization and a number of governments issue clear warnings that COVID-19 could spread very quickly in places of confinement. And these organizations really urged for decarceration, for the release of individuals from prisons and detention centers to advance public health. Simultaneously, Legal Aid BC was putting together submissions that all lawyers could use at detention review hearings on the effects of the pandemic on detainees. And in so doing, it became apparent to me by communicating with these other legal aid lawyers that various individuals were being released from detention on the basis that the pandemic posed a risk to their health. We were curious to see whether the shifts that Molly had experienced in her own practice were unique and specific to individual cases or whether there was a broader pattern or tendency that was developing in in the regulation of immigration detention here in Canada. So I immediately started reaching out to colleagues across BC and in Ontario and Quebec to ask them if they had sample decisions of people who were being released in the midst of the pandemic. What did you find in looking at those cases? I mean, we looked at 17 decisions. And in 16 of the decisions, the decision maker uh, took COVID into consideration and factored it into their decision to order the individual either released or, or detained. Only in one decision did the decision maker state that they did not believe COVID was, was within their jurisdiction to consider. So it became apparent that this was a major shift. The implications of this are significant in a variety of different levels. So from a legal standpoint, this represents a significant jurisprudential development as to uh, the precise things that the immigration division is willing to consider and why. So here's where we need to explain this idea of jurisdiction and the immigration division. It's the thing that made these COVID rulings against detention possible and remarkable. The Immigration Division, or ID, is a branch of the Immigration and Refugee Board, and that board is the quasi-judicial body that makes detention decisions in Canada. When they convene a hearing, their task is to assess whether a person should remain confined or be released based on certain criteria. There are five grounds for detention, but only three that regularly get applied. One is flight risk. Is the person likely to evade immigration proceedings or avoid following through if ordered to leave the country? Another is danger to the public. Has this person been convicted of certain crimes that indicate a credible threat to public safety? The third is establishment of identity. Is this person who they say they are? Can their legal identity be established? This one acts as a threshold for the other two criteria, but it also helps verify where someone can be deported if that's what the ID decides should happen. So how does something like COVID factor into this rubric of decision-making? Put simply, it doesn't. My understanding of this was that COVID couldn't be understood as anything but a condition of detention. It was something a person might experience because they were being detained. And my first thought was that this was a novel approach to a condition of detention because previously the Immigration Division had always stated that it was 
unable to take into consideration conditions of detention when adjudicating detention matters. At that time, conditions of detention were beyond the jurisdiction of the ID, both in practice and in case law. So when Jock and Arbel detected this de facto shift, spurred by COVID-19, where the ID would consider how detention conditions might impact a person's well-being, it was significant in its own right. But its implications go far beyond the pandemic. My life changed. Today, I arrived at Vancouver International Airport in 2017. I fled from Egypt to Canada to seek protection. This is Abdo, a 38-year-old man who came to Canada as a refugee claimant. His story is one of those featured in the report by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. I was arrested without salt. My belongings were taken, including the batteries for my hearing aids. My whole life, I have relied on hearing aids, but suddenly I was in prison, confused, scared, and unable to hear anything. Nobody told me how long I would be detained. Abdo spent two months in three different provincial jails, including several weeks in solitary confinement. The jail authorities said they couldn't afford to provide him with new hearing aid batteries, so he spent most of his detention in complete silence. Some might hope to dismiss this story as one dramatic example, but there are many like it that are well-documented, including by the Immigration and Refugee Board itself. Abdo's experience contains most of the things that critics find morally and legally objectionable about immigration detention, including its conditions. And this was well before COVID was one of them. The immigration detention regime is so deeply flawed on almost every level that it's very difficult to identify which of its components are most damaging. And that is in large part because each component reinforces the other. Let's take Abdo's story one step at a time. I was arrested without salt. My belongings were taken. Suddenly, I was in prison. So first, in order for a non-citizen to be detained, there has to be an immigration purpose underlying that detention. What that means in practice is that individuals are generally either detained upon arrival to Canada or pending deportation. Not all refugee claimants, for example, are detained upon arrival, but they might be where, for example, their identity hasn't been established or where the CBSA has reason to believe they have a criminal record in another country. So once there is an immigration purpose for detention, there also has to be a ground. We described the grounds for detention earlier, but if grounds for detention are present, what does it mean to be arrested without charge? Immigration detention is not criminal law. Immigration detention is regulated in and by immigration law, which is actually administrative law, a different branch of of our legal system. As flawed as the criminal law is, and it is deeply flawed, the criminal law is circumscribed by a number of procedural guarantees that we're all kind of colloquially familiar with. So the presumption of innocence, the need to first charge someone uh, before you can arrest them, the notion that you uh, must prove your guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and the kind of proof that an individual is supposed to bring forward as opposed to the state. Unlike in the criminal law, the Canada Border Services Agency does not require concrete proof of any of these grounds in order to place somebody in detention. Rather, the assessment is a discretionary one. In the criminal law, for the most part, the state has to prove 
that the person is harmful or has committed an offense or is somehow dangerous. In immigration law, the assessment is a discretionary one that can be left in certain situations up to just one individual. Now, again, it's important to recognize that all of these mechanisms are deeply flawed in the criminal law as well. But it's a a glaring difference to recognize that none of those procedural mechanisms are present in immigration law. So Abdo wasn't charged with a crime, nor was he convicted of one. But he does get arrested and put in BC jails for months. I was in prison, confused, scared, and unable to hear anything. Nobody told me how long I would be detained. I was Another aspect of due process is that, once convicted of a crime, the person is given a sentence that tells them how long they'll be incarcerated. Immigration detention has no such clarity. There is something I find really interesting, which is I work with a lot of individuals who have spent time in correctional facilities because of a criminal conviction and then subsequently spend time in a correctional facility because they are immigration detained. And and there's a very material difference between the two that I think is really hard for the people who are dealing with this, and that's the lack of time limit. Jock goes on to say that she's worked with a lot of individuals who, when they serve criminal sentences, they're able to deal with it because they know how long it's going to last. She says if a person can just spend three months going through this as every day, it will end. But with immigration detention, there is no end in sight. It might last two months, it might last six months, it might last five years. And she thinks that's really difficult for people to endure. It's hard on the spirit, hard on individuals' mental health. There are laws dictating how soon and how often a detained person can have a hearing to assess their detention. If they're not released within the first 10 days, then they can have a hearing every 30 days after that, which will, quote-unquote, decide afresh whether they must stay confined. The average length of immigration detention is 51 days, though Canada did hold someone in detention, get this, for more than 10 years. A scathing 2018 audit by the Immigration and Refugee Board found that for people held 100 days or more, the monthly hearings are rife with poor legal representation and fairness issues for those with mental health problems, not to mention the mental health problems caused by detention. The audit found that over months of successive hearings, the factual findings of a case sometimes changed to the detriment of the detained person. This was largely because at every new hearing, a different member of the immigration division was assigned to represent the person. And that member may or may not have been a trained lawyer. It's not a requirement. It becomes apparent, states the audit, that in the face of inaccuracies or vague misstatements, individuals in detention become discouraged or desperate, sometimes no longer attending or attending without speaking or becoming upset and angry at a hearing. There is a large body of evidence demonstrating that any time spent in detention even if it's a short amount of time under relatively decent conditions of confinement, causes fundamental harm. The research is really focused on mental health, though there are, of course, um, physical manifestations of that harm as well. 
There are a number of studies that are focused on Canada and elsewhere in the world that show that time spent in immigration detention causes anxiety, enhances the likelihood of depression, brings on um, serious and sometimes permanent mental health problems, can bring about self-harm, can prompt suicidal ideation and sometimes the taking of one's own life. And all of this research really uh, boils down to the fact that immigration detention causes trauma. It is a traumatic experience for anyone who is subject to it. These harms to mental health are no secret. But there's a twisted way in which Canada avoids accountability for this, which goes back to the lack of due process and the difference between criminal law and immigration law. Remember, we have ABDO incarcerated in a provincial jail— just the same as people being punished for criminal convictions. Canadian law draws a distinction between the things that can be classified as punishment and the things that can be classified as treatment. And the things that are classified as punishment, for the most part, fall within the ambit of the criminal law. And so Canadian courts and Canadian law more generally classifies immigration detention not as punishment, but as treatment. And this is conceptually nonsensical and bizarre and harmful. So you can have an absurd situation where you have an immigration detainee who is held in a cell that is adjacent to a criminal detainee, and yet one of them is subject to punishment and one of them is subject to treatment. The law maintains this distinction even though in the actual experience of immigration detention, there is no distinction between the two. This creates serious problems from the perspective of law because it makes it more challenging to challenge the the kinds of treatments that immigration detainees are subject to. These aren't the only critical aspects of immigration detention in Canada but they are the main processes that define it. When Arbel and Jacques found more people being released in the early part of the pandemic, that shift seemed legally and morally promising. With the conditions of detention now in bounds, perhaps the other treatments that detainees endure would be easier to challenge. But the legal capacities of the shift aren't clear, which brings us to one more key disparity between Canadian law and the detention of non-Canadians. When COVID was starting, the Federal Court of Appeal upheld the initial decision that expanded jurisdiction to include conditions of detention. Here's Molly Jock again to explain more. So there's been, I think, a lot of debate in the immigration lawyer community as to how that decision will be applied. And the language of the Federal Court of Appeal leaves one to understand that the threshold is pretty high for a condition of detention to be such that the Immigration Division should consider it. Uh, The Federal Court of Appeal talks about conditions of detention needing to rise to a breach of a charter right. Now, it's hard to pull that apart, given that the detention in and of itself constitutes a breach of a charter right and lots of elements of detention do as well. Can you say more about what the charter rights are? Like what charter rights do immigrant detainees have? So put it this way, the the most important right when it comes to when it comes to detention are uh, Section 7 and Section 12. Uh, and Section 7 is the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. So when you're detaining someone, you're inherently infringing on their right to life, liberty, and security of the person. That's accepted. Section 12 is the right against cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. 
Um, and that is one that also gets raised in this context. Did you catch that? It's accepted that detention is an infringement of the person's right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And while immigration detention isn't a so-called punishment, it is treatment, perhaps cruel and unusual treatment, both of which are protections promised to citizens and non-citizens alike. charter question is a really complicated one. So let me try to say it this way. So there's a a clear gap between what the law says and what it does. Formally speaking, so when you look at the pronouncements that have been issued by Canadian courts, non-citizens who are physically present on Canadian soil are entitled to certain limited but nevertheless meaningful charter protections. In the actual application of the law, however, that's not always true. And we see that um, in particular in immigration detention. So the Charter of Rights and Freedoms does guarantee under Section 7 a right to life, liberty, and security of person. And the Supreme Court of Canada has said that means any human being who is physically present on state soil, irrespective of citizenship status. And yet the uh, immigration detention regime really challenges that proposition because we see non-citizens being deprived of liberty in fundamentally harmful, cruel, and wanton ways that, as Molly described, simply would not be possible for a Canadian citizen. Oh, Canada, where time stands still, especially if you're in immigration detention with no release date in sight. That doesn't feel very welcoming, but but look over here, that's cool. Welcome to Canada, a country known for welcoming refugees with open arms, unless they're met with handcuffs and detained, apparently. In in both our work, in both Molly and my work, we've documented, as have numerous other lawyers and, and professors and other experts in the field, a really troubling trend whereby detainees are treated as not deserving of the same kind of rights protections, the same kinds of respect, recognition, autonomy as other individuals. And a pattern whereby immigration detainees are too often deemed as risky, as posing some sort of threat to the us that constitutes the quote unquote community. And this has been a pattern that has developed over many, many years. And the pattern is one that is deeply entrenched in the law and practice of immigration detention. And it has profound consequences for immigration detainees, particularly those who are racialized, particularly those who are struggling with mental health conditions, and particularly those who are at the intersection of those those subject positions. The trauma that is caused by immigration detention has ripple effects beyond the detainee themselves to their loved ones, to their families, to their children, and as well to the society at large. And so what was startling in our findings was that with the onset of the pandemic, there was this this subtle but meaningful shift whereby decision makers were more willing to view the detainee who stands before them as a human being. And in a strange way, given the common threat posed by COVID-19, we saw that the location of risk was somehow shifting, that it was the virus that posed the risk, not the newcomer. And that the line between us and them that so firmly kind of um, animates immigration detention law and practice started to blur. And 
with these decisions, we saw a recognition that the, the humanity that we share is actually more important than the reinforcement of these lines. Unfortunately, that was not a pattern that continued. I was arrested without salt. My belongings were taken, including the batteries for my hearing aids. My whole life, I have relied on hearing aids, but suddenly I was in prison, confused, scared, and unable to hear anything. Nobody told me how long I would be detained. I was finally released. My wife and two boys are still in Egypt. I haven't seen them in four years. I live every day thinking about them. As our research has developed, we've seen a real shift towards back to business as usual, a return to the same really harmful understandings of what immigration detention does and how it operates. Why do you think there's this return to the status quo if there was this glimpse of the legally meaningful and maybe humanitarianly meaningful shift in where the risk is located? I think that there are several reasons for it. One is that COVID is easily treated as something exceptional. And I think that's true in a lot of ways across society. You know, we saw governments willing to take the kinds of measures that they would never take in quote unquote regular times. But somehow there was this narrative around exceptionality. And I think this moment in time made things possible that hadn't been possible before. I think another part of the story is that, as I mentioned, Previously, the jurisdiction of the Immigration Division had been limited to not considering conditions of detention. And there, you didn't have case law from appellate courts supporting this expansion of jurisdiction. But now there is an appellate court decision supporting this expansion of jurisdiction, which means there is space for the law to evolve through how it's argued and applied. Connecting the dots between legal practice and research, between courtrooms and advocates, is one of the main ways that Arbel and Jacques hope their research has an impact, especially for something that is arguably so obscured from the Canadian public. Very few members of the Canadian public are able to access either the lived experience of immigration detention or the, the realities of what goes on there. We don't have a lot of statistics about immigration detention. Information about immigration detention is quite challenging or reliable information, I should say, about immigration detention is quite challenging to obtain. But Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International released a report not too long ago whereby they noted that between April 2019 and March 2020, almost 9,000 people were held in Canadian immigration detention. And of those, 138 were infants and children. Every one of those individuals is a human being who, who deserves much better. I think it's also important to acknowledge that the Canada Border Services Agency does not collect information that is disaggregated on the base of race. And so uh, it becomes very difficult as researchers to be able to precisely identify where systemic racism exists and is manifest, notwithstanding the fact that all of us who work in the field understand that systemic racism operates at almost every aspect of the immigration detention regime. And so there's a great difficulty there in that these are sites that are difficult to access. The statistics are very few and also difficult to access. And the reality is that many of the most harmful, most violent instances of immigration detention happen out of sight and out of mind. 
Jock said that one thing she's noticed as a practicing lawyer is that practitioners really appreciate academic research because academics have time and bandwidth to gather data and analyze it in a way that individual practitioners rarely can because they're working on individual cases and they just don't have the time or resources to do that kind of analysis. And I'm quoting her here because some background noise garbled her recording. She thinks their research can help practitioners identify what's happening, what the trend is in the law right now, and therefore make better arguments for their clients. If I could build off of Molly's point, and I think that that's a really important point to emphasize, our hope is that this research can assist individual lawyers in making these arguments and bringing these arguments before decision makers with the ultimate aspiration that this will help shift the law. One of the most powerful, most meaningful aspects of the common law is that it is a law that changes, that grows, that builds on itself. And in that, I see an enormous possibility for change. And I think that the initial point of our research, when we were able to identify this shift towards decarceration and a a real change in how decision makers were viewing immigration detainees, the kinds of arguments they were willing to entertain, the kind of alternatives they were willing to authorize, and the frequency and ease with which, relative ease, with which they were able to order release, That shift showed us that immigration detention actually isn't necessary, which is something that many of us have been arguing for for decades on end. There is actually no need to hold people in immigration detention facilities or in correctional facilities. And we did that (laughs) at the Immigration Division, the Canada Border Services Agency, the government. There was this fundamental shift towards decarceration. It happened organically. It happened smoothly. It happened quickly. And everything was okay. There was no enhanced danger. There was no threat people were accounted for, the system continued to function as it did prior to that point, and things just continued. And so if we were able as a society not to rely on immigration detention in quite the same aggressive and harmful ways, if we were able as a society to create and find alternatives to detention and and, and house people in less harmful conditions of confinement, then what is the justification for returning to business as usual? Why? And this goes to the broader question of of what is the foundation of immigration detention and what are its justifications? And myself, as well as many others, have argued that there actually is no justification. Immigration detention is a mechanism of border control. It's a, a mechanism that's deeply ingrained in Canada's colonial history. It's a mechanism that is rooted in longstanding systemic racism. And to continue its operation is to continue the operation of racism, of colonialism, of the criminalization of human mobility and the coercive reliance on on these kinds of mechanisms of border control. We've seen at certain moments in time, Canadian law shift in these profound and meaningful ways that recognize rights protection, that recognize the inherent dignity of newcomers, of refugees, of migrants. And my hope is that we will continue to see these moments in time. The onset of the COVID-19 pandemic was so horrible on so many levels. And yet, even in the midst of so much human suffering, we were able to see this small silver lining, the small way in which 
the pandemic have revealed our, our core humanity and allowed us collectively to do better in these small ways. And having witnessed that, my hope is that we can continue to do better. Special thanks to Efrat Arbel and Molly Jock for sharing their research with us. You can find links to their work and the other reports mentioned in this episode, plus the Welcome to Canada campaign, on our website. Thanks to Hannah Gross of Human Rights Watch for making Abdo's story available to us. You can watch his video and see other stories through the Welcome to Canada link. Thanks to the Center for Migration Studies and the team that supports this podcast, including Doug Ober, Atia Yekta, and Center Director Antje Ellerman. We acknowledge once again the Musqueam place that supports the Center's work, and that gratitude for it is not enough. For more episodes and information, please visit us online at migration.ubc.ca. Thanks for tuning in.